0: It's Showtime. Don't say it. Please, don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime! It's Showtime, everybody! Showtime! Hello, and welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. As always, I am your host, show. Thank you so much for listening. I always uh, love... Jabbering about movies with you guys, you know, I, uh, can talk for hours, as you have likely seen by now, about movies. Uh, audio wise, real quick, I hope you guys, I hope this is okay. I've been experimenting with different audio solutions as I'm still at home, still pandemic, uh, still pandemic strewn at home using my uh, gaming mic. I did use this for a couple episodes before, but last couple episodes I had gone with my headset and it sounded a little canned, a little tinny. So we'll try this for now. If there are any problems, you can always uh, shoot me a line on Twitter, uh, emails, you can leave comments or whatever, but whatever you like, we can, uh, we can figure that out. But uh, today we're going to talk about five movies. We're going to talk about Mulan, Tenet, The new Christopher Nolan movie, those two are the two kind of blockbusters that I thought we would have talked about by now, honestly, but we're going to talk about those two films, and we're also going to talk about the three films I'm seeing at TIFF. I am not accredited this year at TIFF, but then again, it's a pretty weird year for TIFF, so I think they let less press in in general, especially people who are not with like major media outlets. So, no accreditation for me, but I am still seeing a couple of films. Uh, I saw Another Round, that's with Mads Mickelson. I saw One Night in Miami, Regina King's directorial debut, and the Idris Elba-led Concrete Cowboy. So, we'll talk about all of those movies in due course, uh, absolutely. Uh, it's interesting to see how digital uh, TIFF has gone this year. I think in general years, you can watch things at digital.tiff.net. I think just in a general sense, but they have pushed basically all their films, the films online. I think you can, there's a drive, there's a drive-in they have seen stuff at. And actually I went to see Tenet itself at a drive-in, but not the same one. There's one down here, downtown, pretty close to my apartment actually, where the TIFF has set up uh, their drive-in. The drive-in I saw Tenet is like in the middle of, Friggin nowhere, but <laughs> that's for another time, right? But uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you guys about off the bat, because I haven't made a podcast episode since this happened, was of course the passing of Chadwick Boseman, who uh, you know passed away at a relatively young age, early forties, from pancreatic cancer. And I think if, if nothing else, that's a good call for everyone, especially people who who don't get checked for that very often. A call for everyone to go get checked, right? So. If you haven't, I, I please I encourage you. Cancer is the the worst. Uh, my, my mom crazily enough, during the pandemic was diagnosed with a uh, a form of lung cancer, and she had a surgery to take it out. But th- again, thankfully, before everything got too crazy, and uh, she's doing well, which is good. But it's just those kinds of things make you so much more I don't know cognizant of these of these of how this can affect you and how health can affect you. And of course, it's just sad that someone as young as Chadwick Boseman had to suffer through this. It's crazy that he was diagnosed with cancer. Allegedly, that we're now that we're we're kind of learning some more details after his passing. Since before he was cast as Black Panther, that was years ago. So kudos for that to that guy for being a literal superhero to so many people. I mean, if you guys remember, there was that video. Um, I think it was the Jimmy Fallon show, and people were asked, "Hey, stand in front of this picture of uh, Chadwick Boseman as Black Panther, like the poster of the movie, and just say what it means to you to have a black superhero representing you, a black person on screen." And then he would come out afterwards and say "Hey hey there john hey, How's how's going man and and the the people would freak out and give him a hug give him a hug, and you know do the Wakanda forever thing. It was pretty cool, it was cool, it was cool to see how he inspired people and uh, that and of course, you know obviously people focus on Black Panther, but get on up when he played James Brown in forty two even though that movie was not great, he was easily the best part of that movie when he plays Jackie Robinson. Uh, the legend. And of course, I believe he actually passed away on Jackie Robinson Day, which is pretty wild. So I don't know. It, it's it's really sad to see. And I don't really want to talk too much about what Disney is going to do with Black Panther. We can tackle that on, in, in the months to come. But it's unfortunate that, you know, his family had to go through that and, and that, you know, he had to really try and hone his craft while also dealing with so many illnesses. So uh, kudos to him. And I, I hope he uh, rests in peace. Chadwick Bozeman, I, I wish we had gotten to see more from him. I, I remember we went to go see me and my roommate went to go see Twenty One Bridges, and that was an interesting movie. I think we covered it on the podcast actually. And I think the other reason I wanted to mention Mr. Bozeman is because I mean we just finished the the intro to this podcast, and as, as of course you know, it's a legend has it by Run the Jewels is my intro song here, and I love that song. It's absolutely terrific. Of course, the instrumental version. The, I, I want to say the first word of that song in uh, the actual song is a cuss word, so I could not include that in this podcast, but the reason I wanted to mention it is because I think Black Panther was the kind of one of the reasons I was excited to do a movie podcast, because I re- I wrote pieces about Black Panther, I talked about how Blade, you know, paved the way for Black Panther, I love the music in the trailer, which is why I use it for this podcast, and I still, and I probably always will use it, because it's so good, it's just... I feel like this podcast intrinsically is somewhat linked to the success of Black Panther. And it's crazy to think that the main guy who you expected to basically shepherd the Marvel Universe for the next, uh, you know, what, 15 years, basically, if not longer, is is now gone. So, again, I I hope Mr. Bozeman rests in peace, rests in power, perhaps is a better way of saying that, and, um, you know, peace to his family and to everyone else involved with that. Uh, Again, we'll talk more about, uh, you know, As we move on in the months to come and we see what Disney does, we'll talk about that, of course, as well. But another thing Disney is doing right now, of course, is the live-action remakes. And I mentioned off the top, we're going to talk about Mulan, the uh, latest live-action... Is is it a remake, really? I don't know if it's a remake. But the latest live-action offering of the classic animated movies. Of course, we've already got, let's see, we've got Cinderella... Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, oh, and The Jungle Book, and The Lion King. So this is the latest in that. So why don't we kick off the episode with a quick review of Disney's latest, Mulan. Disney's latest live-action. Mulan is—it is a weird, a weird watch. I think that's probably the, the best way I can sum up this film. And I think for me, I have to—I think first off the bat, acknowledge there are some things about cinema from, let's say, China and Hong Kong that I am not super familiar with so I you kind of have to admit that that like if you are not familiar with those movies you have to admit that if they do try and take from those movies and you're not used to it it could come come across as weird so I do have to admit that perhaps is a little bit of an implicit bias I personally have but at the same at the same time from a general movie making perspective I feel like Mulan has a like leaves a lot to be desired Because, first and foremost, anyone's going to compare it, anyone and everyone certainly is going to compare it to the animated original, right? Uh, Where the uh, Eddie Murphy was in it, and Ming-Na Wen voiced Mulan, and she had a cameo in this one, kind of fun, you can try and spot that, it's pretty, I would say it's pretty obvious, but if you don't know what Ming-Na Wen looks like, I only know what she looks like because she was in that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. movie, or, pardon me, TV show that I watched every episode of, and that's over now, so uh, that's a bit of a bummer. But anyways, Ming-Na Wen was in uh, (laughs) that TV show, as a bit of an aside, but uh it just first of all no, no mushu as you might expect and i think that was kind of the it was kind of the big i don't know if it's, it's not really selling point but it was kind of the big change one of the biggest changes for this live action remake there's no mushu there is no uh musical numbers it's more of an action movie a straight action movie more of a i don't know why i, I want to call it a historical epic like in a, in the same vein as gladiator certainly because it's not it definitely takes From and pays homage to those Chinese and Hong Kong B action movies, and I think it's it's almost intentionally made to look that way. But at the same time, those movies don't have the budget of a giant Disney blockbuster that I think in a regular year would have made probably close to a billion dollars. I mean, judging by the reviews, maybe it wouldn't have. But at the same time, way more people would have gone to see it in the theaters than would have seen it at home on Disney Plus. Because remember. We uh, we kind of talked about this idea back when about Trolls World Tour came out during the beginning of the pandemic after theaters had been closed, right? We talked about the idea of premium video on demands, premium VODs, right? And that's what that's what Mulan is. It was removed off of the release schedule, the Hollywood release schedule, and everyone was kind of wondering, man, is, is Disney going to experiment with Disney Plus here? Because of course, if they make money from Mulan now, they don't have to split it with a the theater chain. They just they take a hundred percent of the profits because you are paying you you the viewer so i did this right you the viewer are paying your monthly fee to disney plus and then you're also paying money to see mulan and here in canada at least it was 34.99 and that gives you access to mulan permanently going forward now of course with streaming movies and vods and so on that is a uh, subject and is uh is uh subject to piracy i suppose and I, I gotta think that was a factor for Mulan because Disney has not released any of the box office numbers for this movie, so that's kind of interesting. I know we've gone way off the beaten path here. I'm not really reviewing the movie right now. I, I will in a sec, but I just find all that really interesting. Now, for the movie itself, everyone is fine, right? Like the acting is fine. Not a lot of comedic relief. They do have some of those the soldiers that she meets be kind of the be kind of the comedy aspect, sort of. But I, from what I recall, this movie, the original movie, I should say, the the animated movie, the Disney that everyone in America and in North America loves so much, had major issues in the sense that it didn't resonate with a traditional Chinese audience. Now, of course, the global box office was much smaller in the '90s as opposed to what it is today, where it's extremely important to you know, quote unquote, win the China box office. But they didn't really like, for example, the songs they didn't like the comedic relief. They felt like the Mulan legend, which is a very real and important one, was being kind of made into a caricature and Disneyfied and Americanized a little too much. So it almost feels like in their attempt to appease those people, it almost feels like they didn't go far enough into that, into that era, into that part of, you know, whatever movie-making would look like, right? Because I still feel like they missed out on making this movie a little more fun like in the end it does seem a little joyless and not because it doesn't have the music in it not because eddie murphy is not in it just because everything just is is a pretty wooden the biggest addition in place i would say of eddie murphy is this witch character she's played by lee gong and i believe the the they don't actually say her name too much in the movie i think they just refer to her as a witch but in the credits her her character's name is Jian niang and i apologize if if i mess up any of their names but uh, yes, Li Gong. She is one of the uh, bigger stars, as I uh, as I understand, in in the Chinese uh, box office market. And she was an interesting character. Yifei Liu is the one who plays Mulan. Uh, Donnie Yen actually is the one who plays the commander. And and Jet, they have some other other kind of people who make a uh, sort of cameos, almost like Jet Li is an interesting cameo as the emperor. He doesn't have a lot to say really, but he he gently is in this movie, which is kind of fun. Uh, si Ma. As uh, Mulan's dad, and Rosalind Chow is Mulan's mom. If you remember, Sima uh, has been in a ton of movies. Um of course, he was in Rush Hour. He was also, I think, recently in the Farewell. Uh, Rosalind Chow, uh, if you remember, she was in the Joy Luck Club, and it was also Keiko O'Brien in Star Trek, which is kind of fun, uh, which is where I recognized her from. You think you would recognize her from the Joy Luck Club, which was a fantastic movie? But whenever I think of her and I see her face, I think of Keiko from Star Trek: The Next Generation, and of course, Deep Space Nine. So that just means I'm a big old nerd. But, anyways, uh, that that's kind of the the main cast. I think most people would recognize. Uh, I just. I don't know though. I This movie, the biggest change I think Mulan makes from the original at the very least is that they don't really leave Mulan's success up to something that's just her her pure skill and motivation. It is more left up to the idea of chi. Now, as I understand, after speaking with some friends who are more well-versed in the, uh, the, the movies that these draw from, from, from the other side of the world, chi is an important concept, something that you can harness and use. You can, like, you know, move boulders with it, or you can do whatever. Like, it is something you can actually use to have a tangible effect on things around you. And the witch character, again, played by Lee Gong... She is kind of the extremist example of this, right? She can turn into, like, a flock of birds and bats and, like, you know, use her magic chi to, like, use her, make her dress fly out and, like, choke guys to death and stuff like that, right? I think it was actually pretty cool. And, of course, they draw a pretty big parallel between Mulan and the witch. So I think I found, I thought that would have been an interesting parallel to dive a little deeper into, but really, it, it was it was so shallow that it almost seemed like they shouldn't have done it at all if they were only going to do what they did in this film, right? And I think that's what kind of bothered me more than anything else. Beyond that, I think the idea of Chi wasn't really explained a lot to the audience, right? Like, if you are already familiar with what it is, maybe it works for you. But for me, as someone who was not super familiar with it, it, it almost seemed a little out there, right? Like, you could have... Like, if, if someone said, Mulan has midi chlorians, and you replace the word chi with the Force, this would have been one of the coolest Jedi movies you had ever seen. You just replace all the swords with lightsabers, and, you know, the the witch is kind of like the Darth Vader character and trying to pull Mulan over to the dark side. Like, honestly, that's where my mind went because they didn't really explain the mysticism of Chi and its place in the culture that we're viewing. They just explain it like, yeah, she has Chi... And it allows her to do backflips. Yeah, she has cheat and it allows her to run on the walls. Yeah, she has cheat and it allows her to be really good at sword fighting and to like, you know, kick things with her feet and so on, right? Like it just, that seemed to be the primary reason for why she was good at martial arts instead of just being good at them like you you expect her to be because she's just a powerful character. And to me, at least, that seemed to at least a little bit rob her of some agency, which is a shame, right? Because part of the whole reason everyone likes Mulan is because she's a strong female character and... When you boil it down to, oh, it's just because she has an overabundance of chi, as I, I believe someone refers to it at the beginning of the movie, then it feels like it takes away a little bit from her personally, right? And it's, it still had some interesting action sequences and set pieces in general, but at the end of the day, again, it's an action movie featuring a fearsome warrior like Mulan. You want to see more. I want more out of it. And it was, it was kind of just tepid. I think ultimately it was tepid. And and I'm I was kind of again I mentioned earlier all that box office stuff and the premium the premier access and 34.99 in Canada. I was kind of annoyed I paid 34.99. I got to say, I was kind of annoyed because I don't think that movie was worth 34.99. Like I I watched that movie my, with my parents and my brother and sister. So the five of us got to watch it for 34 99 So if you view it like that, perhaps it's a bargain. But frankly, I feel like I should have just waited for December when it's going to come to Disney Plus, you know, quote unquote, for free. I mean, you're still paying the monthly fee, but still, anyways. Now, I won't go too much into more into Mulan because, I mean, what more is there really to say? right? You're not getting the original. You're getting something completely different, and it's not as good, unfortunately, right? So Ultimately, I think you should like, – if you're a fan of these Disney live-action remakes, I think you almost owe it to yourself to watch because it wh- where it falls in the hierarchy of – in terms of live-action remakes of, let's say, Cinderella, The Lion King, The Jungle Book, and Beauty and the Beast – I don't know if I'm forgetting one, but – oh, Aladdin, of course – where, where you're – where you rank it in there. I mean, unfortunately, I'm ranking it at the very bottom because, I mean, even the, even the Jungle Book – and i mean is that really a live-action remake if most of the animals are cgi is the lion king really a live-action remake if most of the animals are cgi i don't think so personally but they count it but you know even if you took those two out and you and you only count cinderella beauty beast and aladdin it's 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 clearly worse than all three of those movies but hey that's just me i wanted to like this movie because i love mulan as many people of my generation do but such is life and uh we have to move on unfortunately Okay, let's get to the next movie on the list. I want to power through these as quickly as possible because I do want to spend some time talking about the TIFF films. But uh, we already did Mulan. Again, kind of a disappointing, a bit of a letdown considering all the uh, hype around these uh, VOD movies. But even so, another movie that there was a lot of hype around was Tenet. Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Uh, And I have to always say that name and enunciate very clearly because I always feel like I'm I'm about to say the word Tenet. But Tenet, T-E-N-E-T, that is Christopher Nolan's latest. So let's dive right into his latest Mindbender. I feel like I should start this review of Tenet by talking about Inception. Okay, I think everyone remembers Inception. Very popular film. Leonardo DiCaprio, Ellen Page, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Tom Hardy. right? Lots of really famous actors in that one. And Inception was about, if you remember... I think the movie came out in 2010. Now that I'm thinking about it. Man, that was a long time ago. But either way, uh, the, the core concept of... The core tenet. Ooh. <laughs> I like that, huh? <laughs> the core concept of Inception is very easily explained right people use future tech to go into people's dreams and steal things and they they switch that idea on its head and they want to go into a dream and implant an idea and incept an idea incept some guy and that'll lead to other shenanigans in the future that is i think the simplest way to explain inception it's about dreams and entering and exiting people's dreams right that concept, as abstract as it sounds, when you watch Inception, it's pretty easily explained to you, right? Like any conversation... Because Ellen Page is basically a stand-in for the for the audience, right? So any conversation she has with Leo or Tom Hardy or Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you understand immediately because they explain it in very simple terms. And that brings me to Tenet. Because, again, like Inception, it has brilliant set pieces. I genuinely think the... The set piece you see both at the beginning and end of the movie, relative end of the movie, uh, at the airport is one of the coolest things I've ever seen in a movie. And when it clicks for you, it really clicks, okay? That is, I think, the the key takeaway from this movie. When it is on, it is really on because it's cool, it's slick, it's just fun to watch. And it really is kind of an impressive feat of storytelling and filmmaking. I genuinely think that. The problem is, and I know you can really sense me building up to a big but, right? The problem is, is that everything outside of perhaps that one moment is kind of boring and confusing. And I consider myself, and I consider all of you guys too, people who are able to understand and, and, and I think, and again, I brought up Inception because Inception is an example of a movie where with a complicated concept that is accessible to audiences and Tenet is an example of the complete opposite, I almost feel like. And it's, again, I'm not saying... Tenet is too complicated to understand and um, that's not what I'm saying ultimately when you boil it down it is relatively easy to understand right it's just that the way they explain it to you so John David Washington who is of course uh, Denzel Washington's son very talented he was in Black Klansman if you guys remember that the detective he was also uh, of course the star of Ballers with The Rock right and that's where I was first introduced to him But he is the the, uh, star of this movie and uh, perhaps fittingly his character does not have a name and in the credits he is referred to as the protagonist and he actually refers to himself as the protagonist often throughout this movie which is I guess a a little on the nose for me, Christopher Nolan but hey, I'm not going to complain too much about that. And uh, Robert Pattinson is in it as well. Kenneth Branagh, Elizabeth DiBiecki who uh, of course you might remember from my uh, TIFF review of Widows right where she kind of broke out onto the scene but either way... This movie, it's just, again, it's not complicated, it's just kind of explained to you in a less than clear way. So, for example, and this was in the trailer, there's a scene in the trailer and uh, early on in the movie where uh, Washington's character, the protagonist, meets. he gets recruited into Tenet, and he meets this French scientist, this woman... And she explains to him that when he is when a bullet is flying back into his gun, he's not actually firing the bullet he's catching the bullet with his gun, and then they never do that ever again in the movie, which i think I found really irritating like there's a point perhaps where he catches the gun instead of like he's it looks like he throws it, but really he's catching it and i found I found that kind of irritating because it happens more than once right like a lot of the a lot of the callbacks the cool things earlier in the movie are so subtle that it's hard to get them and it's funny because i complained about previous christopher nolan movies about how he, he doesn't treat his audience with with intelligence right look like that i always i always like to point out that scene in uh, the dark knight rises the third of the batman movies that he had made where uh, alfred explains to him that when he thought he was dead when when alfred thought that bruce wayne was dead i didn't explain that properly when Alfred thought that Bruce was dead, he would go to this place in, I don't know, in Italy or something and go to a cafe and he he would hope he would see Bruce and they wouldn't talk. They just nod at each other and they'd go on with their day and he would know Alfred would know Bruce was safe. And when he explains that, right, they actually show Alfred going, sitting in a cafe, looking up, thinking it's Bruce, but it's some other guy. And then he just ashamedly looks down or unfortunately looks down. Just so at the end of the movie, when it actually does happen, you think, oh, hey, that's that scene that happened earlier in the movie. I always complain that Christopher Nolan does stuff like that because it doesn't treat his audience with respect. And uh, to his credit, he he tried to leave things up to simple explanations in this film, but it doesn't really land because those explanations are so muddled, right? Like Robert Pattinson, probably the best part of this entire movie, he does his best. He is, he is gamely trying to explain things to Washington's character, again, kind of the stand-in for the audience. And there are some twists and turns, but for the most part... The dialogue is kind of muddled, right? Like, look like he'll ask, James Washington, John David Washington will ask him a question and say something like, "Hey Neil, so what happens if I go back and I meet myself?" And he goes, "Well, reality, the fabric of reality will be undone, and uh, it'll it'll come undone." And you don't instead of just like, I don't know. They they just they really they really take it really takes you out of it when they have this dense explanation for it instead of kind of a, a clearer less muddled explanation like they had, for example, and again, I'm bringing up Inception, but they did a really good job in that film as well. The funny thing about Inception is that Christopher Nolan wrote that movie, as he usually does, right? Like, he usually writes his own movies, and he wrote Tenet, too, but I don't know what it is. I don't know if maybe the concept is more complicated in Tenet than it was in Inception, but I don't know. It just was kind of a bummer that... like. I guess to boil it down, after Inception was done, I thought to myself, man, I can't wait to see that movie again to see all the little things I missed. At the end of Tenet, I had no desire to see that movie ever again because it was so convoluted how everything is explained to you. They explain the idea of inversion and entropy being reversed and these turnstiles that they use to go back in time and, you know, the air being unbreathable when you're inverted and, you know, not meeting yourself in the past and all these little things that I think could have been interesting. But ultimately, I kind of just felt like I almost feel like Christopher Nolan felt like those scenes were a chore because he just wanted to get you to the next cool set piece. That's what it really felt like, right? Because the set pieces were cool. And even then, in the climactic battle at the end of the movie, it's not immediately clear who they're fighting, why they're fighting them. How they're achieving the combat in the first place with all the time travel stuff going on—it's just kind of confusing. And again, I think a lot. I think most people who understood Inception should have been able to understand Tenet, it, but it's just so such a chore to understand that it's just kind of a bummer, right? And ultimately, there's there some other things about it too. Like the, a lot, basically, all the women characters have not a lot going for them. The most interesting relationship is probably probably between Elizabeth DeBiecki and kenneth brana her her abusive husband and even then it's just it's kind of you want to see less of that because it's it's not that you should shy away from something that's horrifying but at this in terms of abuse right but it's just it didn't really make all that much sense when they're trying to explain their relationship and then how how their relationship pertains to time travel again some fun gotcha moments right there's some fun and you, you definitely realize them at the end of the movie but still it's just i don't know it's the movie is on the lower end of, of Nolan's movies for me. Like I'd take Dunkirk over it. Certainly, I would take Inception, obviously. Obviously, the Batman movies. Uh, I don't know. It's just a, a little bit of a bummer that the, a lot of these characters weren't given more to do. So I think if you are a completionist for that kind of thing, you should go and see Tenet because you might get more out of it than I did. But honestly, after we're done talking about it today, I hope I never have to talk about Tenet ever again. So take that for what it's worth. All right, time for TIFF. TIFF 2020 is going on right now. Uh, As I am recording this podcast, it is Thursday. I believe the last day of the festival is a Friday. Uh, We'll see if any surprises come out on Friday. No People's Choice Awards screening this year because, of course, it is all digital. So much different TIFF. Hopefully, again, we get back to the regular regular, uh, festival capacity and screenings and everything uh, in 2021. But the way it is this year, I only got to see three movies, Another Round, One Night in Miami, and Concrete Cowboy. So let's start with the first movie that I saw chronologically at TIFF. And we'll start with Another Round. The original title of this movie, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, is uh, Druk, D-R-U-K. That's the original title. Now, again, this movie is a Danish movie. It was made in Denmark, starring Mads Mikkelsen, the director Thomas Vinterberg, and I think those two actually collaborated back in 2011 or 2012 on the movie The Hunt. And uh, I'd seen that movie, I think, once, and I have not seen it again, but... That is, I think, in some of the, uh, the the literature surrounding this on the Tiff website, is the last time they collaborated. So, Mads Mickelson and Thomas they there together again, and I do genuinely think that another round is perhaps the best performance of Mad Mickelson's career. Okay. I think he's, I think he's a wonderful actor. I recently actually watched Hannibal during the uh, pandemic and that's a great performance, but I mean, it's a lot, not a lot of emoting by uh, by Mads Mikkelsen, right? I mean, perhaps as you might expect for him playing, you know, Hannibal Lecter, the famous cannibal, Hannibal the cannibal, right? But uh, I, I think Another Round is genuinely his best performance and the, uh, the Cliff Notes of this is four friends, and they're all teachers at a local high school, they test this philosophical theory by a, I, I don't know if he was a Swedish philosopher or a Danish philosopher, but either way, they test his theory that if you have more, if you have a higher level of alcohol in your blood, right, if you have a higher BAC, blood alcohol content, you will be more successful and obviously the way to maintain that is if you drink constantly right so they think this this philosophy says that if you maintain a, a level of drunk a level of tipsy around 0.5 percent that you will be more successful as if if you were sober so that's that's kind of the basis for this movie right they they decide to test this out all four of them i think uh what what is it it's one he is the history teacher Maz Mikkelsen is the history teacher there's the gym teacher there's a music teacher and I think the other guy, it's kind of unclear. I think he's maybe like an English teacher or another kind of arts teacher. But either way, there are four of them, uh, are different disciplines in this high school. And when when the movie starts, you kind of see Mads Mikkelsen, he's struggling, right? He has a, a dead marriage. His wife seems to be kind of annoyed by him. She's not really that interested in him anymore. She works nights and he works days. So they don't see each other all that much. They have two kids who don't see a lot of uh, interaction with his uh, with their father, certainly. he just seems He just seems to not be present in his own life. And that includes at school, too. And after, basically, the, the teachers, uh, pardon me, the parents and, and their kids of his class call him into a meeting where they basically complain and say, hey, you're not, you're not being a good teacher, and he kind of hits rock bottom, and that's when he had dinner with his friends, and they eventually come across his plan and decide to enact it, right? So that's kind of the Cole's notes, the cliff notes of this movie. As you might imagine things go south, right? Like, things obviously go south when, when you drink that much alcohol. And because the interesting part was that when they do maintain the 0.5 alcohol level in their blood, they are successful. He's a better teacher. He's, he's doing funny anecdotes. He is talking about, uh, you know, leaders who were drunk over history and how you shouldn't judge them and so on. But he's doing all these unconventional lessons and they're funny and they're electric and all the students love him and they're learning things. And sa- same goes for the music teacher and the the gym teacher and and everyone else the english teacher as well and i guess they decide that they were so successful they're going to push it and eventually drink more and say hey if we were successful at 0.5 why wouldn't we be successful at 1.0 or 1.5 or 2.0 right so i think and that's when things get out of hand and essentially it's about the lighter side and obviously the darker side of descent into alcoholism and that's essentially what this movie is about it is about alcoholism And I find that really interesting because it definitely casts the consequences of drinking in not that dark a light. Now, I don't want to spoil the movie. I mean, something pretty bad happens at the end of the film. But at the same time, it almost seems to posit that it's actually pretty good if you drink, right? I mean, I'm a radio host occasionally uh, here in Toronto. And I thought to myself, man, like, what if I drink before I go on the radio? That would be bad, right? That would not be good. And so I think... Whereas that would be the case for, like, majority of people, this movie seems to posit that it is okay to a certain extent. Now, maybe that's – and I wonder because maybe that's, like, a European thing, right? Like, maybe I've I've read and and heard from people that that is something that is more, like, casual drinking in terms of, like, having a glass of wine with dinner. That is something that is more acceptable perhaps in Europe and other parts of the world than it is in – at least here in Canada, certainly, and and definitely in the United States as well. I mean, people drink, but – I don't think that's quite as accepted as it is in in different parts of the world. So perhaps that's just a a different, maybe that's just like a different, you know, for lack of a better term, culture shock. But at the same time, they do really spiral quickly. And it just seems that they, even though what happens at the end of the movie is not great whatsoever, they almost seem to gloss over it very quickly at the end of the film. Like if you guys see this movie, I, I would love to hear from you because even though the movie ends on a, on a, like the last, climb, the climax of this movie is that things go south poorly with their marriage and with some of their other friends, his other friends, uh, Mads Mikkelsen's character. It's just that they everything is fine at the end. Like everything is is looking up, right? Like everything is coming up. Millhouse for Mads Mikkelsen at the end of this film, which I think is kind of what was a, it was a little jarring for me. Let's put it that way. Uh, but ultimately. Like I said, I think it allows a lot of um, emotion to come through on the face of Mads Mikkelsen. A lot of close-ups, I really like. A lot of uh, shots with him by himself, and even though there's obviously no uh, voiceover or anything like that, Mads Mikkelsen is such a good actor that you can tell what he's what he's thinking on his face, and that's not something you've really got to see from him in a lot of his blockbuster. Uh, American movies, right, on this side of the world. So I think that's why I really like this so much. You really seem to get a piece of his soul a little bit, and I think that's what made this movie so good, especially for Mads Mikkelsen. So if you're a fan of his, I would recommend it. If you're interested in a, a, a very fun but also kind of... Uh, it can bring you down a little bit, (laughs) Uh, Danish movie, then I would suggest you check this out as well because these movies don't come around all that often and I don't think that they're necessarily shown all that often in uh, North America either. So if you do get a chance to watch this, I would would definitely heartily recommend it. We'll soldier on here to the next movie I saw at TIFF. I know I said I was going to do it chronologically, but you know what? I've changed my mind. I'm going to leave another night in Miami for the end of the episode and I'm going to tackle right now the movie you come to see Idris Elba for, Concrete Cowboy just in case you're wondering Old Town Road is not in this movie I uh, just couldn't find a song that really fit this and to be frank I forget what music was in this and you know for movies and, and, you know out in theaters I can go back and check but you can't go back and check this year so I decided to use a different song Old Town Road God I love this song let's Factually, the best song of all time, right? That's how that's how it works when you're the, the number one song for the longest period of time, right? Maybe? I don't know. Not a big music buff, but anyways. Uh, let's get back to Concrete Cowboy. As I mentioned in the preamble right before the music came in uh, about this movie, you and I certainly did this as well when I clicked on the, on the uh, TIFF website. You see this movie because of Idris Elba. Right, He's a great actor. I really like him. I mean, I liked him enough to name my cat Stringer because I liked him so much in The Wire. But I mean, he he's a fantastic actor, and I think a lot of people feel the same way. So I think you go see Concrete Cowboy for Idris Elba, and you come out of the movie thinking, man, yeah, he was fine. I mean, he he actually isn't in the movie all that much. He's certainly the perhaps the anchor and the reason for the movie being where it is. His character, I should say. But you come out of this movie thinking that the two young men, Caleb McLaughlin, who is, of course, uh, one of the uh, characters, one of the main characters of Stranger Things, the Netflix TV series, and uh, Jarrell Jerome, who is, I believe, so let's see, he was in Moonlight. He was kind of the best friend slash later love interest in the middle arc of Moonlight. I think his name was Kevin, the character. And then, of course, he won an Emmy for playing Corey Wise one of the Central Park 5 in that uh TV miniseries when they see us that was pretty good too uh very very good actors both of them uh it was it was cool that they get to be most of the movie right again Harp who is uh, Idris Elba's character he's just not in the film all that much and I, and I think it's not so bad because the scenes he does get are pretty uh, are pretty important, they're pretty heavy hit- hitting. There's a great scene where he tells Cole, Caleb McLaughlin's character, his his character's son. He tells Cole uh why he was named that and you hear Robbie Coltrane's songs uh playing in the background and of course he was named because Harp loves uh, Coltrane, so Cole, Coltrane, right? And it was a, it's a good, it's a, it's a fun kind of emotional scene. Very good, very a uh, little heavy, but it gets a little, almost like it gets lighter as the scene goes on. I think that's a testament to both Idris Elba and Kayla McLaughlin. Now, the plot of this movie uh, is Cole is a uh, perhaps a wayward youth. He's in either grade eleven or grade twelve. He's seventeen or eighteen years old, constantly getting into fights at school. So he essentially. But his mother, who is fed up and doesn't want him to continue down this path, she just up and drives him at the end of the school year with his his clothes in black garbage bags. She drives him to uh, Philadelphia, from Detroit to Philadelphia, where uh, Harp, his uh, estranged father, is, and uh, he is a cowboy. Now, uh, much like other movies, this is, this movie is kind of like a uh, kind of like a forgotten community. That's what it's about, right? It's about this ignored subculture of Philadelphia, that of uh, black cowboys, black uh, horse carers for right, caretakers. Let's say it's a better way of putting it. And uh, uh, Harp is one of those, uh, one of those cowboys, the Concrete Cowboy, the titular Concrete Cowboy. And Cole is sent to essentially learn some discipline. Now, of course, when he gets there, he reconnects with his childhood friend because I guess he was from Philadelphia, and he connects with his childhood friend, played by Gerald Jerome. And uh, his name is Smush. His nickname is Smush. And he basically is—he's uh, a, he's a great guy, very charismatic, cares about Cole deeply. But he's also a drug dealer, and he wants Cole to be more involved with his life as opposed to what he views as a, a part of the past in the Fletcher Street stables, the place where the horses are and all the cowboys who work there, including Idris Elba and so on, right? So that's kind of the plot of the movie. And you basically can see where this is going, right? Like, Cole, Cole has to essentially choose between learning some discipline with his father or getting wrapped up in a life of crime with his best friend. And for that reason, I think this movie is a little corny, right? Like, it's a little... Uh, It's a little predictable, a little formulaic, as I've seen the word thrown around on social media. It's just... You've, you've seen this movie before, right? Like, you've seen all the story beats, the plot points, the the motherly figure, the taciturn father, the wayward youth, the drug dealer friend. Like, they're all archetypes in other movies that you have seen and watched, right? I mean, especially if you're listening to a podcast about movies, you have seen enough movies, because you care about movies, clearly, you have seen enough movies that you have seen every aspect of this film before, right? Like, is Cole really the horse that needs to be broken in instead of the horse that is the, the crazy deal? Demon horse that no one else wants to try and tame. You know, is is Cole really learning some Mr. Miyagi skills by shoveling crap and hay out of the out of the sables? You know, is is Cole in a form relationship with the the other cowgirl who leads him into this subculture community? He sits around the fire listening to these black cowboys tell tales about how the how the black person has been erased from the American consciousness. And I think that's look that's really important. It is really important because I think especially perhaps in the time we live in those kinds of stories are constantly becoming coming to the forefront as they should as they should have a long time ago honestly but it's nice that they are but it's just this particular story, even though it is really interesting, learning about the Fletcher Street Stables, and it is filled with great performances from Idris Elba, from Gerald Jerome, from Caleb McLaughlin. Method Man is actually in this movie, reuniting with uh, Idris Elba from his days on the Wire. Actually, he is great as a a black cop who is uh, has roots at the Fletcher Street Stables. There's actually a pretty interesting scene where, as you might predict, uh, the police come for because there are complaints of of malnourishment for the horses. So the animal services and the police come to seize all of the horses. And uh, Method Man is one of the cops, and he is the only black cop. So it was really interesting to see the racial dynamics of this movie as well. But at the same time, it's all a little tired, right? Like, it's all a little too you know wrapped up on with a bow and, and so on and then the movie even ends with like the parents kind of reuniting like the like like uh, cole's mom and and Idris Elba's character harp again they kind of not necessarily it doesn't necessarily imply they're going to get back together but it's like the first time in the movie you see all three kind of parts of this family together so that was again you've seen this before right you've seen this before so again a little corny but I did genuinely genuinely like the uh the performances enough that I think it, you can overlook this to watch because it is an enjoyable watch, right? It has some silly parts to it, no doubt, but the performances, the actors and the general way it flows from beginning to end is is enjoyable enough. It's also very pretty, right? Like I think I don't know if you, the listener, are super well versed in seeing movies where it's predominantly black people, but because a lot of this movie takes place at night, it's interesting to see how the director and cinematographer filmed these black actors against the backdrop, the black backdrop of the Philadelphia nightlife. And I think it's really—it's very well done. It's very colorful. Lots of interesting light and shadow is used, and to, to great effect. And I think that's a a very underrated aspect of this movie. But ultimately, I think when you go, you will be the most struck, the most affected by the performances of Caleb McLaughlin as Cole and Gerald Jerome as Smush. So pay attention to that if you can. It just all but great as usual, but again, not in it all that much. Not as much as I think you were perhaps led to believe, certainly as much as I was led to believe, but still again, I, I really enjoyed this. So this is kind of a, an above average, considering the, uh, just the sheer amount of movies that are at TIFF, I think that this movie, yeah, is an above average showing, uh, especially in the uh, pared down version of TIFF 2020. Last movie for me of uh, TIFF 2020 is uh, definitely my favorite movie. Definitely the the most enjoyable and perhaps most affecting movie of uh, all the films we're discussing in this episode. And I'm really excited to share some thoughts with you on this one because I think that anyone who sees this movie will have a very... Uh, I don't know if visceral is the right word, but definitely a very strong reaction, probably either way, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum. So without further ado, let's get into One Night in Miami. It's not often that somebody's directorial debut is, uh, like I said before, so affecting. Of course, uh, Regina King, who won the Oscar for what, If Bill Street Could Talk last year, just last year, and so this, she used her, her clout, and of course she was also the star of the uh, HBO miniseries The Watchmen, right, the, based on the comic book, so she, she had a busy, a busy uh, 12 months, busy 12 to 14 months, doing the winning the Oscar, then being in a, a great, critically acclaimed TV show, and now directing a very good movie, One Night in Miami. Now, it's important to note that this movie is a fictional account. None of this stuff actually happened. It is all based on a play that I believe was released pretty uh, relatively recently. 2013 is, I believe, when the play was released. And the uh, the screenwriter of the uh, movie is actually the writer of the play as well, Kemp Powers. He wrote both. Uh, so a good guy to get to write the uh, screenplay for this movie, right? So uh, it, is a, it is a fictional account of a night where Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, soul artist Sam Cooke, who died pretty young in the 60s, and uh, NFL running back Jim Brown, you know, that's right up my alley, having Jim Brown in anything, <laughs> uh, they gathered as friends and they discussed their roles in, you know, the, the the upheaval and, let's say, oh, the civil rights movement of the 60s, okay? That's what this movie is about. So One Night in Miami, I believe it, The in terms of chrono- chronology, it takes place following Muhammad Ali's uh, fight against Sonny Liston, which is a, obviously a real thing, right? So... He beat Sonny Liston, and then him, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown all gathered at a motel to discuss life and politics and all these different things, right? So uh, Muhammad Ali is played by uh, Eli Gorey, and uh, Eli, of course, uh, if people remember, if people watched Ballers, I talked about Ballers a little bit when we talked about Tenet and John David Washington Eli was uh, one of the characters who who has a pretty interesting storyline with The Rocks. He's in Ballers. That's where I know him from. Uh, Kingsley Ben-Adir plays uh, Malcolm X. He's in a lot of uh, smaller things. Like he was in, I believe, Peaky Blinders. He was in The OA, He had a small role in uh, that King Arthur Legend of the Sword movie that was directed by Guy Ritchie and star Charlie Hunnam. So he's in a lot of smaller-ish roles. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr., Maybe he's the most famous of these four guys. He was, of course, in Hamilton. He is kind of the narrator of Hamilton. And uh, I'm completely blanking on the name of the character he plays, but he is a major part of Hamilton. And uh, Aldous Hodge plays Jim Brown. And uh, Aldous Hodge, he's been in a, in a number of things as well. Funnily enough, the thing I remember him most from is I believe he plays Jack Tatum. In the Friday Night Lights TV show. And that was just feels like a lifetime ago at this point, maybe even more so because of the pandemic. But it's funny to see him come and come back and play another football player. And uh, he definitely fits the profile because he is a giant, jacked human being. And I do not believe he's wearing a muscle suit. So, anyways, those are our uh, four guys, of course, in, the, in order uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown. Now, this movie has. The reason I like this movie so much is because it tackles a lot of social issues that obviously were important when the civil rights movement was really getting going in the 60s, but because of the world we live in today, I feel like a lot of these issues are more relevant than ever, right? Like, for example, they have a lot of different discussions about a lot of different things. Like, they have discussions about class stratification, money and how you make it, colorism, obviously the way the different kinds of microaggressions you're treated to by by others mostly white people in their cases because this takes place in the 60s and like for example the movie starts with each of them getting their own little vignette before they meet up in Miami about how again I use the word microaggressions how they experience these aggressions at the hands of white people like for example uh Muhammad Ali knocks out a a white boxer and he doesn't he just you know, he's, he's very flamboyant and almost, almost abrasive in how he is, he's kind of shouting and, and, and crowing because he's, he's a winner and an amazing boxer. Uh, you have uh, Sam Cooke, who is a, a talented soul artist, and he sings a song that a, bunch, a room full of white people are clearly uncomfortable because it's a black person standing in front of them. You have uh, Malcolm X, who's introduced to you via a speech, one of his famous speeches he gives on TV. And the uh, white sports, or not sportscaster, that's what I am, the white broadcaster uh, gives. Kind of like when he introduces the clip, he says, "Oh, and here's the hateful Malcolm X," and it's just that's how he introduces him, and it obviously that's a different kind of bias. And even when Jim Brown, Jim Brown's, I think, is the most, and again, I use the word affecting. It's the really the one that stands out the most because he goes back to whatever rural state he's from, and, and he talks to his his neighbor who lives in this gigantic plantation like house, and the neighbor is an older man, and he, he is so excited to see his his uh, his neighbor who he's new known since a little he's a little kid and. You know, he says to Jim. He says, "Oh, Jim, you had a great season, record breaking. We all support you here. I look after your mom. We'll never forget you. We're, we're glad you don't forget where you come from." And then this guy's granddaughter comes out of the house and says, "Hey, grandpa, can you help me move some furniture?" And Jim Brown doesn't want to make this old man move a piece of furniture. He's a strapping NFL athlete. Says, "Hey, neighbor, why don't you help? Why don't you let me move it?" And the neighbor dead looks in this guy's eyes and says, "Oh, Jim, you know we don't let the n words in the house." And then just walks away. And you should see that Aldous Hodge plays it perfectly. The look in his face is one of horror and hurt and disgust that someone who he considers a friend and a neighbor and someone he's known his entire life would just so casually dismiss him because to him, all he sees is the N-word, right? And, man, that is... Like, that, that really hammers home that point to me, personally. And I think the other reason I mentioned how a lot of this stuff is very like it's very it's very relevant today like for example there's a conversation in this movie where Malcolm X really bemoans and goes after Sam Cooke because Sam Cooke makes his money by selling music that has no message he claims to white people and he makes money off of white people and, Malcolm, and he says, oh, well, I'm doing all this. I'm, I'm great. I'm taking advantage of the white people. And every time they remake a song of mine or remake a song of a friend's, I get a dollar put into my pocket because I own the masters and all these different things and how he's taking advantage and he's a shrewd businessman. And Malcolm X, his response, which I found very poignant, was that, these people don't view him as their equals. They will never view him as something real. Even if They don't care that he's getting their money because ultimately he is a toy to them. He is not something real to them. They'll, he'll never be on an equal footing with them, right? And it's, it was so relevant to me because, I'm, again, I re- I'm recording this on a Thursday. So last Thursday, a week ago today, tonight, I suppose, or yesterday, I guess because I'm recording this on, I, t- I guess technically it's Friday morning because I, I record things super late, but anyways... Uh, the, NFL, the NFL season kicked off, right? And of course, this has been during the pandemic where all the Black Lives Matter protests have been happening and a lot more discussion about race and the the, the white privilege and the uh, differences between how races are perceived, certainly in America, but all, definitely all over the world. And it was really interesting because The NFL, when it kicked off, it was between the Houston Texans and the Kansas City Chiefs. And pardon me for bringing this back to sports. If you're not really a sports fan, I apologize. But it is relevant, I promise. And the Houston Texans and Kansas City Chiefs, led by Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes, respectively, linked arms, okay? So they had a moment of unity. It had nothing to do with the flag. It had nothing to do with the national anthem. And they linked arms, all kind of in one long line on the field, right? So it was like all of the... Texans were on one side of the field up until Deshaun Watson at the end of the line. And then Deshaun, and they're all linking arms. And then Deshaun Watson on his end links arms with Patrick Mahomes. And then going from there, all of the Kansas City Chiefs are linking arms as well. And the coaching staff's involved. It's one long line that goes almost the length of the football field. And they say, the, the PA announcer at Arrowhead Stadium in Missouri says, hey, this is a moment of unity. Please respect it. And we'll have a moment of silence. And the people in Kansas City booed them. They booed them. Now again, it wasn't every person in that audience? No. Because it also wasn't a full audience. About seventeen thousand people versus like the regular probably what, fifty-five to sixty thousand people as it usually holds. So again, not a full not a full audience. And perhaps you can make the argument that the people who were being respectful were being silenced So you're not gonna hear them, obviously. But at the same time, it was enough people booed that it was audible on the broadcast. And and it was to my To my great disappointment, nobody on the broadcast acknowledged it. It was really uncomfortable. But I think that the reason I mention it is because I think that is a great example of how what Malcolm X said to Sam Cooke in One Night in Miami is really something that is still true today. That is something that is absolutely true today because those people in the seats there who booed don't view those athletes as as people. They just view them as toys to go win them a football game. Like, what would have happened if Patrick Mahomes just walked off the field? They, they like, I mean, they probably wouldn't have forfeited, but at the same time, like, They don't view him, he just won them a Super Bowl. The Kansas City Chiefs hadn't won the Super Bowl in 50 years. He is their franchise savior, probably going to be one of the greatest quarterbacks of his generation, if not all time. And they booed him and the rest of his teammates, despite that they play, quote unquote, for them because they were, quote unquote, showing a moment of unity. Those people booed unity, and that is messed up, and they booed them because they're black. And that is what stands out to me. That is absolutely wild, and as it pertains to one night in Miami it's wild because you would think that things that were relevant in the 1960s would no longer be relevant today in terms of in terms of you would hope the world is a better place but uh, as we've seen in the last uh, 6 months as we've seen over the course of 2020 it is clearly not that is clearly not the case so yeah, it's just, it was, it, it really struck me, because that had just happened, and all the, like I mentioned, the, the Black Lives Matter protests and all that stuff, that really, it really stuck with me. Performance-wise, uh, great stuff from all the four main actors, this uh, Hodge, Eli Gorey, Kingsley Ben Adair, and Leslie Odom Jr. Uh, ben Adir is probably the standout for me as Malcolm X. Everyone is great, like I mentioned, of course, but... Malcolm X is just, I think, given more to do. You just see more of the preaching that everyone has come to uh, learn about. I mean, for example, Malcolm X existed far before my time, obviously, but I've learned about him in school. And again, I I haven't watched him enough on, obviously, you know, quote unquote, television and YouTube and so on, in order to really point, look at his performance and say, yeah, that's that's Malcolm X. But he evoked the fiery preacher who was so passionate about so many things so well that i can only imagine that he captured his his spirit at the very least and, and the the integrity of his message and i really liked that that really stuck with me after i finished the movie i think from a directorial uh, perspective we talked about how this is uh, regina king's first film uh, that she has directed and you know what Pretty simple, all things considered. I think, like I mentioned, this is based on a play, and I think perhaps sometimes it can really seem like a play. Like, sometimes it can seem really stagey, right, in the sense that it's just four guys standing around talking. But they do enough scene changes. Like, they go up to the roof of the hotel, they come back down to the hotel, and they switch up the the duos for a while. Like, for example, Sam Cooke leaves, and then uh, Muhammad Ali goes after him, and then leaves Jim Brown in the hotel room with Malcolm X. And then when they come back, they switch it up again. So you know Malcolm X is with uh Sam and Jim Brown is with uh Muhammad Ali and they you know what I mean like they switch up things like that a lot so you get different combos of dialogue but it's not a very flashy movie nor do I think should it have been it's just I think it's a very pared down, very restrained movie for Regina King's first ever directorial uh, debut, right? So that's pretty cool. I I, I really like that. I don't really know that she could have jazzed it up any more visually, so I'm not going to complain about that. Uh, but all things considered, I think it was a a very interesting, relevant film that I think has is full of great performances. And I don't like, I don't expect Regina King to get nominated for an Oscar. Maybe he gets nominated for. Uh, adapted screenplay maybe someone gets uh, a best supporting or best actor nomination somewhere but as I so often say, you shouldn't judge this movie based on whether or not it gets nominated for an award. You should just watch it because I think more than ever, this movie is relevant, right? I, I know I, I basically talked about the NFL and, and how that relates to this movie for about a couple of minutes earlier in this review. But it, it really is relevant because it's, it's how this film and issues from the 60s are still relevant today. And I think that is what makes this movie so good in addition to all the great performances and direction and writing and everything, right? So that is what I hope, beyond anything else, you take away from what I've said about One Night in Miami this uh, this episode. Well, that is it from me, and uh, perhaps, as we have come to expect, I have blown past my uh, promise of 45 minutes. I apologize, but hopefully you guys got something out of this. Again, we talked about Mulan, Tenet, Another Round, Concrete Cowboy, and One Night in Miami. Uh, three TIFF movies, three film festival movies, and... Uh, two blockbusters. That's kind of what we thought the uh, year would be, right? We thought we'd be talking about James Bond and Black Widow and uh, the latest Fast and the Furious movie. I had some a guest lineup for that one and, and all these different things. But uh, again, another uh, wrinkle in, to, in the thing in the year that is 2020. Uh, hopefully, the rest of 2020 isn't so crazy. Uh, Of course, I mentioned James Bond. That's going to be coming out in a couple of weeks. I don't know if I'm going to go to the theaters to see that. Maybe we'll try and sneak in a drive-in movie. Or maybe it comes to VOD as Mulan did. Black Widow. Uh, Wonder Woman 2, all these movies are, are on the near horizon. French, The French Dispatch, that Wes Anderson movie, has been removed from the release schedule. So we'll see what happens with that. I was really interested to see that movie as well. So maybe we are uh, going to see a lot more of video on demands after maybe like shorter theatrical runs. Or if that's the case, we'll obviously cover all the films on this podcast. But yeah, I don't, I don't anticipate myself going back into a theater anytime soon. So don't hold your breath on that. But uh, I do want to see also Ammonite, Nomadland, and The Father, three movies I missed out on. At TIFF. So we'll uh, put that on the schedule as well with those blockbusters we mentioned earlier. But uh, that will come later in uh, perhaps September, maybe the beginning of October. We'll see what the release schedule for the rest of 2020 looks like. But uh, for now, I really appreciate you guys listening. Hope you made it through this long on the podcast. I hope you uh, enjoyed all of those movies or will enjoy all of those movies. Perhaps is a better way of saying it when they do come out. Always uh, love hearing from you, so leave me a comment or review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. But for now, thank you so much for listening. I uh, wish you guys the best of health, and I hope you have a great night. In my culture, death is not the end. It's more of a stepping off point. You reach out with both hands and bust and segment. They lead you into the green belt where you can run forever.